Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC, and this episode is a Pillar and Ground confession episode where we seek to understand and apply the truths in our Westminster Confession of Faith. And as we said in the past, uh, these episodes are a little more dense. They may be more difficult to take in on a walk. They may require or necessitate sitting down, maybe with a Bible uh, and having a time to really study. Um, and so we recommend that, or you may be able to enjoy them on a walk. This particular episode of our confession is going to be a little longer than our standard 15 minutes for the confession episodes. But what we are beginning today is the first of three episodes on the Trinity. How fitting, three. One on the doctrine of the Trinity, one on heresies concerning the Godhead, and one on implications of Trinitarian truth for our lives. Uh, Much that the Bible teaches about the Trinity is very mysterious. And I would first say that we must bow in humility as we enter into this holy realm of thinking about God. Uh, Trinitarian models and illustrations usually fail. St. Patrick's Irish shamrock, uh, one plant, three leaves or water as gas, ice, and liquid, they simply fail. Uh, You can tear the shamrock, but not the Trinity. And that illustration negates the personhood of God. The water illustration is actually more an illustration of heresy than truth, as it points to modalism and presents God in three forms or appearances. And so what I would say at the outset is we tend to search for models illustrations that will do justice to both God's oneness and his threeness. And truth be told, I don't actually think there is one. I don't think there's an illustration that helps us understand this. These are mysterious, profound things. And so I want us just to recognize the mysteriousness of the Trinity. There is clarity, but it's hard to get our mind around. And the main thing we need to do is be faithful to the Bible and how it reveals to us who God is and be satisfied with that instead of an adequate pictorial or illustrative model. Um, So with that being said, Westminster Confession uh, 2.3 says that in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. A brief summary of what we'll talk about today, four things. Uh, God is one. Two, God is three. Number three, each of the persons is distinct from the others. And four, The three persons are each fully God. So first, God is one. This has to do with the unity of God. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 32.39 says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. This is the unity of God and the singularity of God, that there is no other. There is only one being worthy of worship, and that is the Lord God, Yahweh. This is what we refer to as monotheism. There is one God who is Lord of all, and he is the sole object of worship. 
He is the sole controller of the world, the ultimate authority to whom we must be subject. He is the only Savior and the only judge. Monotheism is in contrast to polytheism, where there are many gods, or even to henotheism that acknowledges the existence of many gods but worships only one. Uh, We are monotheists. We believe in the unity and oneness of the Godhead as written by Paul in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This truth is so basic, the oneness of God, that even the devils do not deny it. As we read in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the three persons of the Godhead are one in their eternity, always having existed with one another. There was never a time when they did not live together in love and peace and glory, abounding in every perfection and fullness. They are of one in power, powerfully acting as one, equal and unsurpassed in their power. The word substance that is used in the confession of one substance is really gets at the truth of one essence. Uh, and it's important to understand what they were thinking of then. We creatures have existence while the creator has pure essence. So yes, we do affirm God's reality and we often hear God exists. With our modern language, that is absolutely true. But be careful about saying existence in a way that we would deny his essence. To the ancients, to exist is what described finite creatures. Essence or substance refers to God's eternal self-existing being. And so there are no differences of essence in the Godhead. Uh, They are all one. The oneness of God is really the chief objection of Hinduism to Christianity and Judaism. There are 330 million plus objects of worship in India. In India, they are looking anywhere and everywhere for power and salvation. And so this is an interesting question when I was there in India. Why would a culture who believes in 330 million plus objects of worship persecute Christians for adding one more in Jesus? Well, it's because we're not adding one more. We believe in the scriptures and with the Westminster Confession of Faith that there is only one. And that's the statement that causes concern among the 330 million plus. We're denouncing them to be no gods at all. Ricky Gervais, a self-proclaimed atheist, said something recently that really struck me. He said, since the beginning of recorded history, historians have cataloged over 3,700 supernatural beings, of which 2,870 can be considered deities. So next time someone tells me they believe in God, I'll say, oh, which one? Zeus, Hades, Jupiter, Mars, Odin, Thor, Krishna, Vishnu, Ra. If they say just God, I only believe in the one God, I'll point out that they're nearly as atheistic as me. I don't believe in 2,870 gods, and they don't believe in 2,869. 
Oh, but Ricky Gervais does not understand what a monumental difference is in that number one. We do not proclaim one among many, but the one true only God. And that has infinite consequences that one among many does not have. But God is not just one. God is three. There's not only unity in the Godhead, there's diversity. And this is the great obstacle and mystery for monotheists. How can there be one God and three distinct persons? While we confess God as one, 1 Corinthians 8, 4, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's no God but one, we recognize three who are God. And the distinction in the Godhead of the three persons is real, but it is not essential or of essence. The persons are certainly more than offices, more than modes, more than activities, more than mass, more than ways of appearing. And the church historically has said that we do not understand how God is three in one, but we understand that he is not three gods. And we understand that the three members of the Trinity are divine. And so we understand the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Now that's that's the truth of the Trinity. Can I get my mind around that? Not real easily, but what I have to look at is the scripture and consider these passages that point to clear diversity of persons in the Godhead. Colossians 1.15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In Matthew 28.19, the Great Commission says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and hear the three distinctions in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The benediction that we often use from 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Distinctions. In Matthew 3, at the baptism of Jesus, when Jesus was baptized, immediately the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And then a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, distinct, uh, and yet united as one. Other passages point to the three distinctions. Romans 1, 1 through 4, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So he's a servant of Christ Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God. It says he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God. Now listen to this, in power according to the spirit. The Bible makes clear distinctions of personhoods that God is three and God is one. Romans 5 does the same thing as it talks about We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And later it would say, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through what? The Holy Spirit. Through who? The Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So based on these scriptures, the three persons are fully God of one substance, power, and eternity, but distinct. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the three persons are each fully God. God is one. God is three. The three persons are each fully God. 
The Westminster divines were trying to make clear in as few words as possible that the Father, Son, and Spirit are God. And that's why they say, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are of one substance, power, and eternity. Consider Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, 3 through 4. This is really a great uh, example. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then later he says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter, I thought you said he lied to the Holy Spirit. And then you said he lied to God. That's right. The three are God. In John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later you read, and the Word became flesh, giving clear status of Jesus as God. And what I want us to consider as we consider that each are fully God, there's a really important distinction that has to be made here between what we will call, again, the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. Let's consider the ontological trinity as we emphasize each being fully God, and then we'll discuss economic trinity as we consider their distinctions. Here's what ontological trinity means. It is the trinity itself as it exists apart from the creation. And so what we understand with God existing apart from the creation is this. There is no subordination among the persons. They are equal, as the confession says. We must be on guard against reading any kind of subordination into the very being of the triune God himself, because that being is one. The Son, in his state of humiliation, submits to the Father according to his humanity. But this submission does not reflect or entail any sort of subordination within the Godhead. There is indeed mutual glorification and deference of each to the others, but there is no subordination in the essence of the Trinity. The members of the Trinity instead support one another, assist one another, promote one another's purposes. All three participate in all the works of God, creation, revelation, redemption, judgment, and they all glorify one another. That is a really important reality where you would read in John 8, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. John 16, 13 through 14, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, once again, this episode, I'm defining truth. I'm not applying it. The third episode in the Trinity, we're going to see the implications of the ontological Trinity, why that matters, that there's no subordination in the essence of the Godhead. But for now, we're defining truth. Now, each of the persons is distinct. So we, the ontological Trinity, each is fully God. In their essence, there is no subordination. 
In the economic trinity, you begin to see each of the persons is distinct from the others. Uh, we just talked about the distinction of persons when we discussed God as three. But now consider the distinctions. The economic trinity is how God relates to the creation. And this is, if you go back to previous podcasts, this is why I asserted that wrath is not an attribute of God. It is a working out of his justice. Because in his essence, there was no wrath. But in his relationship to the creation, uh, we find God exercising his justice with wrath. So these roles are not necessary to the being of God, but that's a division of labor with regard to creation and redemption. The three enter into transactions with each other. Jesus prays to the Father in John 17. The Father speaks from heaven while Jesus is on earth at the baptism. The Father and Son send the Spirit into the world, John 14, 16. I will ask the Father who will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Spirit bears witness to Jesus. The Spirit is another comforter, not the same as Jesus. The three glorify and honor one another. The Son voluntarily becomes subordinate to the Father, saying the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Father commands, the Son obeys. Similarly, the Holy Spirit, when Jesus and the Father sent him into the world. So the point of this is, there is unity in the Godhead. All the persons of the Godhead are divine, and there are clear distinctions in their work in relationship to creation and redemption. One of the clearest points is 1 Peter 1, 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. The Father foreknows, the Son sprinkles the blood, accomplishes, and the Spirit sanctifies and applies. The Father plans, the Son executes, the Holy Spirit applies. But even as the Father plans, the Son and Holy Spirit are joyfully cooperating with the same uh, in all divine tasks. So, a summary of the ontological and economic trinity, the three persons are equal in power and substance and glory. That's ontological. But they take on different jobs in creation and redemption. That's economic trinity. Uh, The word triune says not just that God is three persons, but that God is three in one. Just a word on the back part of the confession, 2.3, where it says, The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. As we close, this gets really dense, but I want to address it. The eternal generation of the Son is spoken of, his eternally begottenness. The Nicene Creed says, The only begotten Son, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. The eternal generation or begetting the Son is hard to, to understand. How did the Son become the Son? By conception, yes, but Scripture teaches that this conception is not the beginning of his sonship. John 17, 5 says, Glory I had with you before the world existed. 
This is what this eternal begottenness means. Jesus is always eternally a son to the Father. If Jesus was already son in eternity, was there some kind of generation or begetting or conception in eternity that made him son? It's pretty speculative. The secret things belong to God. What we know is that Scripture calls Jesus monogenous, uh, only begotten. Uh, the statement is true, but the difficulty is what does that mean eternally? Again, first it's best to say what it's not. It's not the Father giving existence to the Son by a creative act, nor is it the Father conferring divine essence upon the Son. Eternal generation is very different than earthly generation. Earthly generation requires two opposite sex. The generated is then weak, helpless, ignorant, and young. Christ was begotten in eternity in a unique way that did not require being made. The second person of the Trinity, this is the essence of what it means, has an eternal relationship of sonship with the Father, unending, eternal. Now, the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit that the confession speaks of, you can see in John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Interestingly, there's not a lot in the scripture about this. There is John 16, 7 as well. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the Father and the Son send the Spirit. What's so interesting about this statement in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Western and Eastern churches in 1054, they divided over the detailed formulation of the doctrine of eternal procession of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the basic definition of eternal procession is this. What the Spirit does is from the Father and the Son. He is the executor of the will of the Father and the Son. And it suggests an image of divine breath. The Spirit proceeds from God as our breath proceeds from our mouth. A somewhat broader term than generation, but many theologians uh, see little difference in the meaning. So those are the confession ends with eternal generation, begottenness, and eternal procession. And again, I know this episode has been doctrinally careful, precise, dense, lofty. And next week, we're going to increase our awareness of both orthodoxy and heresies concerning the Trinity. And as I mentioned, I'm really excited about the third episode where we'll bring practical implications and applications of Trinitarian truth to our lives. Uh, this is not meant to just give us a large head of knowledge. This is meant to give us faith that works. So thanks for joining for another episode of Pillar and Ground.